Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Empower Up podcast. I'm Jeremy Boren, Gray Matters brand manager. And today we have a guest who is uh, new to the company, new to Gray Matter. It's Tom Walker, and he is our new cybersecurity and building a live solutions consultant. Welcome, Tom, to the podcast. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for joining us. So one of the things we're going to be talking about today is uh, OT cybersecurity, as we always do, but also smart buildings and what it really means to have a smart building as opposed to a connected building, which I think is an interesting concept that not everybody necessarily uh, you know, gets at first pass. But Tom, I just wanted to start with, uh, if you could tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, about your, your background. I uh, started, uh, I was in the Navy for six years and I worked on several different types of control systems, uh, various pieces of equipment, CCTV, navigation, gyroscopes. And towards uh, about the middle of my career there, they started a pilot program to build an internal IT team because they didn't actually have an, an official like IT uh, rate at the time. And it was focused around the networking communications of the PCs that were now being brought onto the ship. We had roughly a couple hundred um, PCs all throughout the ship. And it was a fairly small ship. It was a destroyer class ship. And it just, yeah, I started working with them on the IT stuff. And it was kind of interesting. I really dug the networking side of it. Support technician for s several different companies over a couple of years, um, but always seemed to lean towards the networking side and security. I just seemed to have a really good knack for it. And uh, so I started building uh, a full network infrastructure for a real estate management company to tie all their leasing offices from uh, all these remote locations back to a centralized data center infrastructure and, you know, from the core of it, building that as secure as possible because we're dealing with, you know, residential information, personal information, and then later on uh, started credit cards uh, accepting. Um, I did some consulting for various small businesses for a period of time, rebuilding their networks and moving towards centralized services, uh, managing, you know, the the securing of their core business applications. When you're a small business, you have kind of core pieces of whether it be Quicken or whatever uh, type of software you're using, you wanna make sure that's secure, backed up and uh, easily accessible to the people that need it. Um, and then I build a data infrastructure for an MSP uh, that was hosted out of New Jersey, uh, and it was in a multi-tenant environment. And you want to make sure that each of the businesses couldn't see each other, their users couldn't see each other, or, or cross data within the data center infrastructure. Um, and then I landed at Penn State University as the supervisor of the network team for facility automation services. And did you go to Penn? Did, did Penn State hire you with with an idea of of you know, kind of capitalizing on your experience and and building a similar type of network? Yes, uh, uh, the previous or my predecessor was a BAS guy doing IT work. Um, they wanted to take it from a different perspective and let's take an IT person, build the infrastructure the way it should be, 
and see if we can teach him the BAS. Um, and uh, within six months, I was able to learn enough of the BAS side that it really didn't matter. I, I knew enough to be able to tie the two together and use experiences from both. Ah, cool. And what do you think of State College and Penn State once you got there? Are you an alum or, or, or did you, what was your experience with Penn State before? I grew up in the area, uh, oh, okay. about 30 minutes outside of State College. Um, always grew up watching Penn State football and visiting, doing games and all that kind of stuff. Um, and they, you know, they're kind of one of the biggest industries here in central Pennsylvania to work for. For sure. I mean, it's like, I mean, it's basically Pennsylvania's third city in a lot of ways, um, you know, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, and then you've got Center County and State College. It's just so massive. Yep. So um, so let's talk a little bit about that work. Um, so first, I, th I think maybe we should help people out with the scope in terms of buildings and, and staff and whatnot. So when when you did did your work establishing Penn State's BACnet network? Um, you know, what are we talking about in terms of scope, buildings, and, and, and all of that? Uh, so roughly, we have twenty-four campuses, um, uh, six hundred plus buildings across all those campuses, all throughout the state of Pennsylvania. Um, Eighteen hundred plus controllers, IP-based controllers. Uh, Three hundred plus servers uh, for all the applications and backend infrastructure for the building automation applications and roughly 2000 plus switches spread throughout all those buildings um, that all tied it back to our central data center infrastructure at University Park. Um, I had roughly six staff members, uh, six field techs and eight operator techs that helped me manage um, not only monitoring that whole infrastructure, but then supporting the applications, uh, doing installs, break fix, all that kind of stuff. So that's a that's a scope and magnitude that really would rival any kind of well, not any, but a lot of companies out there that that have a, a real estate portfolio or certainly in terms of university campuses. I mean, this is a major, major, you know, building automation control system, right? Yeah, we have about 90% or 80% of the campus was just one particular application. And we had 30 servers of it that we managed for most of the campuses. What was it like when you first got there and kind of take us through, you know, how, how things evolved during your time? Um, it was a, a flat, completely flat layer to infrastructure. It was organic, got built over the years out of a necessity more than a, a you know, looking at it from an infrastructural point of view. So sure. we had daisy chain buildings. There was one link that we found out later on that by creating a bypass on one of the pieces, they ended up basically two thirds of the network could have been taken out by one switch. Oh. Um, and so it, it was a, a quite eye-opening. Um, I I was it, I wasn't sure how to break that apart and how to really redo it. So I spent about the first year just kind of understanding things, beginning to understand how backnet works and P 
piecing all the stuff together to develop a plan. And so um, about uh, five years ago, we started down a path of building a fully routed layer three core infrastructure that was fully redundant um, back to the data center so that we could have about 60% of the network offline and still stay functioning. The buildings could still operate. The systems could do, still do what they needed to do. Uh, but yeah, it was a it was a big undertaking mm -hmm. and we're probably roughly 200 of those 600 buildings has have been converted over to that new network. Mm -hmm. Actually, even more than that, it's probably we're almost half. We're probably about 300. But problem was, is as we were developing the new network, new technology became available that kind of changed our direction a little bit. Sure. And, I, you know, that that's a challenge probably in any project. But but what you said, too, at the beginning where it had been you know built kind of organically uh, over time on a on sort of a need basis rather than from a strategy basis, I mean, that's probably pretty common, um, right, in the industry? Oh, yeah. I, I, I've talked to several universities across uh, the U.S., and they all were in, are, are, are in, even at this time, uh, similar situations. They're, they're having issues with the backnet traffic. They're not, they have buildings dropping offline, and most of them, when I get into talking with them or looking at their network architecture, they're in that same state, a big flat layer two. Um, it wasn't designed by a, a person experienced in network. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of single failure points or even bottlenecks that would cause uh, large disruption to building automation traffic. Right, and I know you partnered with Gray Matter along the way too, right? Can you talk a little bit about that? What that, that was like? Yeah, um, several years ago, I can't even remember <laughs> so many uh, yeah. different things we were doing, but we were we were looking for that next piece to kind of help us start securing the infrastructure. So we we started building that resiliency into the network infrastructure, but now we needed to start securing it better because um, we were still having contractors installing stuff that they weren't supposed to and. Uh, random users connecting into our network that weren't supposed to we had at one point somebody cross-connected our network with the athletics network oh, man. Uh, so it just we needed a way to lock it down so that the buildings would would be able to operate on their own but still communicate back to the data center and so uh i was in a uh, a meeting uh we had one of the sales reps from gray matter was sitting there talking about a bunch of different things and i, I was kind of not really paying attention until he said the word hip. And I'm like, hip, what the hell is that? Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so we uh, sat there and I wrote some notes down and then went and researched it. And I called him back the next day. I'm like, hey man, you need to get tempered networks in here. And he goes, I didn't even tell you who that was. <laughs> I said, the internet <laughs> told me. <laughs> <laughs> Can you explain hip uh, and hip switches? Yeah, um, it's a host identity protocol. Um, it sits on top of the TCP IP stack so that um, it's using crypto IDs to authenticate the device communication. So 
you create these relationships within those HIP switches that allow certain devices to talk to certain systems, um, which is uh, all around the idea of micro segmentation. So you're allowing devices to communicate that need to, but not any of the ones that don't. Um, so you're trying to minimize the exposure from that building level infrastructure. So we have it set up so that when uh, the building controller needs to talk back to the data center, it can only talk back to that da the data center BMS application. Uh, mm -hmm. The lighting controller in the field can only talk back to the lighting server. And as we started micro-segmenting those buildings, we started to see a better improvement on just the communication uh, of those buildings back to the data center. There wasn't a lot of this noise that doesn't need to be there coming back through the infrastructure. Um, and, and of course, we broke stuff along the way. We, we micro-segment a building and then realize, oh, wait, that building's sharing mechanicals with the building right beside it. So the next day, we're out converting that other building over to the micro-segmentation so we can create the relationships between them and allow them to talk to each other. Sure. And that sounds to me kind of like it, it, it's a it's a way to address something that's a bit unique to universities because I mean by their nature it's supposed to be a place where a lot of different people you know be it students, uh, faculty, staff members, are able to to access the network. So you, you want to have a network that's open, right, um, and available, but then you also obviously need to have these very um, you know limited protocols to to keep information flowing where it should be. So like, is there, do, were you concerned about balancing those things or is it less of an issue on the OT side? Uh, no, it, it, uh, now Penn State, uh, we had a completely separate infrastructure at the main university campus. Um, but as we started expanding out to all the Commonwealth locations and those remote campuses, we needed a way to get back. Um, we looked mm -hmm. at, you know, getting our own dark fiber and all these kind of things. And it just didn't make sense uh, cost wise. And um, since there was already a, what they call a converged service infrastructure all the way out to those locations. And so what we were able to do with the hip technology, it was be able to place those hip switches on a converged network, but the converged network couldn't see anything that was happening behind that hip switch. So mm -hmm. we were using them as the kind of conduit to get us out there. And then we were taking it from there and building out the um, internal infrastructure for the building then. Gotcha. So I, I've seen you use a term that I, I wanted to ask you about. It's, it's zero trust segmentation. W what does that mean? Uh, zero trust basically means that from if we just take a hip switch and put it on a building, nothing is going to be able to communicate. There's right. zero trust between that building and the data center. Mm -hmm. And so then you start just adding the layers that do need to communicate and creating those trust relationships between the devices and the application server. And that by nature, the default out of the box, it blocks everything. So we would see situations, like I was saying, uh, where two buildings were communicating prior to that that we didn't know about um, a lot of times people if a, a default outside air sensor was broken in the one building they would just point it to the building right across the street from it 
The mm -hmm. only problem with that is once we put the zero trust uh, segmentation on there, then it no longer can talk to that building. And so we'd find a whole bunch of different broken things out there that we didn't even know about because people were just kind of putting band-aids on the things without actually fixing the problem itself. Right. So the zero is almost like a philosophy about how to start where you're, you're starting from, from zero, having no access and building up from there rather than saying hundred percent access and then trying to, you know, shave off parts that, that shouldn't, is it, is that kind of the idea? Yeah. Um, today you see a, a lot of people saying, well, I got a, 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 a smart building individual pieces of it may be smart. So you may have a, an elevator system that's accessing the security system, or you may have uh, the BAS system is talking to the lighting system, but they're not necessarily operating together to create that smart concept. They're basically connected. So they, they can connect out to machine learning and all these different pieces, but they're in silos by themselves to truly show a, a smart building you know you I, I think i mentioned about the there's a commercial where the, you walk up you swipe your badge to get in the building and by the time you get to the elevator there's already an elevator at the floor to take you to your floor your lights have already turned on your cooling is already started and your computer is firing up that's a true smart building is where by one action, I can do multiple other actions in multiple other systems. And to really get there, you have to make sure that all your systems can share a common language. And Penn State had decided to standardize on BACnet several years ago. And so everything we built, we made sure that had some kind of BACnet or Modbus integration that we could do so that long-term, whenever we get to that point when we wanted to truly make this a smart building, we could start pulling those pieces together and let those systems talk to each other. Um, you know, we started down a path with scheduling where we started reading in schedule information of the students' uh, classrooms and general workspaces and forced that down to the building controls and only turned on those rooms when uh, those classes were scheduled. And one of the big things you found is there is a, a 60 to 80% underutilized space utilization across the university. Um, and it was because people wanted to only teach on Tuesdays and Thursdays between 8 a.m. and 2. <laughs> so mm -hmm. and they were all trying to schedule their classes during those times, and it, it, it wasn't a good use of the space. And one of the things we were looking at for this past summer, and I think it'll be coming uh, up in some of the future releases, we're, we're looking at, you know, how do, do you take all the students and put them in, in the building that you can control really well? Or do you take the students and put them in the buildings that you can't control really well? Um, more or less what I'm talking about is like, uh, if it's a zone-based control, we don't have individualized that we can segment out individual spaces. So we have to turn the whole building on anyway. So let's just put all the people in that building and then shut off the building that we can control. Uh, it started new conversations between us and the registrar's office and us and facility coordinators. It, it really opened up a lot of lines because now we had the data available to 
prove what we thought was happening. It, we kind of had an idea, but this actually kind of brought it to the forefront and showed you, hey, we really got a problem here. We don't need more classrooms. We just need better scheduling. Right. I, you know, I, you know, university is a perfect place for this, but I mean, it's other industries too. Obviously, if if you have, uh, you know, a client that has, um, you know, a lot of hotels or whatever kinds of properties, is that image, you know, in that commercial where somebody scans their card in and you know, it's op- the office like prepares for them, is that something that exists in in reality, uh, or is it still pretty uncommon? Uh, for the most part, it's uncommon. You still yeah. have, uh, you know, you have bits and pieces of it. So you may have, like mm-hmm. I said, like the elevator is talking to the security card. I saw that at uh, one of the properties I visited recently. Mm-hmm. Um, you scanned your badge, and by the time when you scanned your badge, it told you which elevator you should go to. Okay, so I thought that was really cool. Um, yeah, uh, but I don't. the The system isn't connected then to start turning on space and lighting and all those things yet. So there, there, you see p- small pieces of it, but I don't necessarily know there is a full cohesive unit. Um, I saw uh, Automated Logic or part of United Technologies. They have a, a user facility down in uh, Florida that we got to view, and they had started tying all those systems together there. They had to write some custom backend scripting and stuff to do some of the things, but they were working towards that goal of being able to have that very smart building and everything's talking to each other. Does that make it kind of an exciting time for you, you know, just personally to, to be in the industry because you know, there's so much, there's so much bandwidth, so much opportunity to do really creative, innovative things with buildings and people and how they use them. It's not something that's like super established to me. It seems like the sky's the limit. It is. I mean, we're kind of on that, 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 the, the 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 foundation you know the the things are starting to put together you know and, and all of it relies on really good and secure communication so i mean that's kind of the backbone so i've been in that part of it and now seeing that we can utilize that secure backbone to do so many more things with it and the sky's the limit i mean when you look at start looking at manufacturing plants and uh real estate property management, all these different vectors. There's so many different ways we can start making those systems talk to each other, share information and, and be able to do so much more. Right. And especially and, once you start talking about like micro or uh, machine learning and uh, uh, the uh, AI components mm-hmm. of it. One of the pieces we were looking at is we're starting to at Penn State, they were starting to build a data lake. So that data lake is going to be the core infrastructure for everything. All the data is pushed up into that data lake. From that data lake, we're going to take the information, share it with analytics, share it with AI and machine learning and be able to take and produce information back into the system. So we could have it literally go through. It sees a problem with a particular temperature of a room. It could then send a command out to open up the valve 100% and then close the valve to zero and look for a difference. If it sees no difference in that, then it can issue a work order automatically and say, hey, you need to go replace this valve because that valve is not functioning. Or at least there's an issue with that valve. So you can kind of direct the work to the problem areas, or you get to the point where the system's learning the information and you get to a point where it says, hey, 
you don't have a problem yet, but you're going to have a problem here in the, the next couple of days with this pump because it's running much hotter than it was yesterday. And it's also uh, using uh, much, a lot more energy than it was the previous days. So you can get into some of those really neat concepts. That, uh, I think it's just amazing what we'll be able to do here. Right. And that's a lot more efficient than waiting for whoever's using the room to, uh, you know, submit a, a complaint or send an email to the building operator that it was too warm and the AC wasn't kicking in or something like that. So, yeah, and, and get you out of that reactive mode and more into the predictive and prescriptive side of things. Having to constantly fight fires is not the way to do business. We should know. All right. We have these things coming. One of the things we were looking at uh, was uh, autoclaves being able to they were replacing filters or seals every three months or every month, whether the unit ran or not, which doesn't make sense. Now we could take that. We know the runtime at nine, uh, 90 days uh, mm -hmm. is the fail expectancy of that. So let's back it off. And at 80 day or 80 hours runtime, we'll know that, hey, we need to go replace this before it gets to failure. Yeah. And and you said it earlier too, but just to stress again, I mean, all of this stuff is really cool, but it's, it's, you know, none of it's worth it if you can't make it secure. So, you know, that's super critical to, to all of this happening. Right. I mean, because you do, you know, you, you make these options available and I mean, it can increase, you know, the, the potential threat vectors, right. And you need to, you need to plan for that as well. Yeah, and that's one of the things we started fighting with was is how do we secure all this stuff? Um, we don't want necessarily certain people getting into the systems. How do we share all this data that we're collecting? How do we share that with students, researchers, um, whoever's asking for it in a, a nice, easy format, but also secure? And so we were able to find a way to do just an outbound, push the data out to the cloud and give access from there. So we're not getting them inside the core infrastructure to cause havoc or cause issues inside. Well, Tom, I really appreciate you taking the time to be on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. That's it for this week's edition of the Empower Up podcast. Thanks for listening. Just as a reminder, please go on to Apple Podcasts and rate and review us. At Gray Matter, we really thrive on data and feedback. So we'd love to hear from you about what you think about the podcast, what you'd like to hear in the future, ideas for future episodes and guests. Find us on Apple Podcasts, click rate and review. It really helps spread the word about the podcast. And you can also find us on a bunch of other podcast platforms, including Spotify, Pocket Casts, and Anchor, and also Google Podcasts. So thanks again for listening this week, and we'll see you next time.